0: Hello, and welcome to the Hardcore Zen Podcast. I'm Brad Warner. I'm your host. I am the author of Hardcore Zen, Letters to a Dead Friend About Zen, Don't Be a Jerk, uh, Zen Wrapped in Karma, Dipped in Chocolate, It Came from Beyond Zen, and many other fine books about Zen Buddhism and other stuff. This podcast is sponsored by your donations. And if you would like to donate to keep this podcast going, please go to hardcorezen.info slash donate. That is Zen dot info slash donate. There you will find links to my PayPal and Patreon accounts. Those are my main means of economic support, and I really appreciate your donations. But as always, this podcast is offered for free, so you don't gotta donate if you don't want to donate. Today's recording comes from Felsentor, which is a Buddhist monastery, a Zen monastery in Oh, look, I think it's on an island or it seemed to be on an island in Switzerland and it is run by Vajra Palmers who is one of the Dharma heirs of Kobun Chino Otogawa Roshi who was the teacher of my first teacher Tim McCarthy so that's my connection with the center. The recording was made on August 25th 2015 when I was on one of my usual tours of Europe The lecture is ostensibly about the Heart Sutra, but in it I get into a lot of other topics, including Hitler's golden elevator, so it's kind of entertaining. And uh, take it away, Brad, from 2015. There's a lot of translations of the Heart Sutra, but this one is special to me because it was the first translation I ever heard, and as far as I know I'm still the only one who's ever put this translation into a book. And actually, uh, some of the people may be able to correct me on this because it, it's the translation done by Coben Chino. Uh, he did it sometime when he was living in the U.S. And, uh, and Tim McCarthy, who was my first Zen teacher, was his jisha, his assistant at the time. And they, they got together a, a kind of a committee with Coben leading it to make a translation of the Heart Sutra, which I assume... They were going to use for their own chanting purposes or something. Uh, but then I never, I never uh, saw, saw it again after that. Uh, and um, actually, I, a friend of mine is a teacher in a kwan Korean lineage Zen group, and they use a translation which is very similar to this. Uh, and contains certain weird phrasings that I only know of from the Cobincino translation. I asked him once, is it the Cobincino translation and why? But he said, as far as he knows, it wasn't. But it, it's. Anyway, I'm going to read this to you. How about I just read this to you instead of telling you about it? So, uh, this is what we were chanting this morning in Koban's English Avalokiteshvara Bodhisattva, when practicing deeply the Prajnaparamita, Perceived that all five skandhas are empty and was saved from all suffering and distress. Shariputra, form does not differ from emptiness, emptiness does not differ from form. That which is form is emptiness, that which is emptiness, form. The same is true of feelings, perceptions, impulses, consciousness. Shariputra, all dharmas are marked with emptiness. They do not appear nor disappear, are not tainted or pure. Do not increase or decrease. Therefore, in emptiness, no form, no feelings, perceptions, impulses, consciousness. No eyes, no ears, no nose, no tongue, no body, no mind. No color, no sound, no smell, no taste, no touch, no object of mind. No realm of the eyes and so forth until no realm of mind consciousness. No in- ignorance and also no extinction of it. And so forth until no old age and death and also no extinction of them. No suffering, no origination, no stopping, no path. No cognition, also no attainment. With nothing to attain, the Bodhisattva depends on Prajnaparamita and his mind is no hindrance. Without any hindrance, no fears exist. Far apart from every inverted view, he dwells in nirvana. In the three worlds, all Buddhas depend on Prajnaparamita and attain Anuttara Samyak Sambodhi. Therefore, know the Prajnaparamita is the great transcendent mantra, is the great bright mantra, is the utmost mantra, is the supreme mantra, which is able to relieve all suffering and is true, not false. So proclaim the Prajnaparamita mantra, proclaim the mantra that says Gate Gate Paragate Parasam Gate Bodhisva. And that's that's the translation that he did. Um and it's not quite the same as the, the standard translation, which is used in a lot of places, um, which, is, uh, which is this one. Abalokich just far above, well, it's almost the same, but. Uh, that's, that's just a little, I suppose you could call it a poem, but it, it puts in a very small package all of the important things about this practice. Um, it at once seems very philosophical, but I also think it's very practical. It's a way of looking at ourselves and the world, which is, I think, a better way than what we are used to. Um, And... We tend to look at ourselves in a certain way as individuals who move around the world uh, doing things. And yet, Buddhism has it that there is another way of looking at ourselves, which is that we are parts of a much larger whole. And we often forget that. So that's one of the things that this, this is, uh, that this poem is trying to talk about. But it's also talking about um, time and delusions, and and all sorts of interesting things are contained within this, because he says, uh, whoever wrote this, we don't know who wrote this. It's it's attributed in the text itself to. To uh, Avalokiteshvara Bodhisattva, but Avalokiteshvara uh, is not a real person. <laughs> uh, it's a, it's a, the Bodhisattva of compassion, and, and as far as anybody knows, there's no historical Avalokiteshvara. So, so this is what we, in our contemporary terms, would call a piece of fiction. Uh, it's It's written as if it's being said by somebody, but it's not. It's written by an author who wants to convey certain things, but we don't know who this author was uh, at all. Uh, i I think I just said he we don't even know if it was a a man or a woman there's no There's no indication of, of who who wrote this at all and And as far as I've seen, nobody even has a theory about who wrote it. so I, I find that interesting. But this unknown author says. All dharmas are marked by emptiness. They neither arise nor cease, are neither defiled nor pure, neither increase nor decrease. Well, that's absurd. Um, dharmas being things, being everything that we live through and everything that we are, uh, we, we are, uh, we do arise and cease. You know, we're born at one point and then we die. So we can say that we arise and cease. And every, everything that happens in our lives has a beginning and an end. We started this retreat on uh, Monday night. And here we are Tuesday afternoon. Is it Tuesday afternoon? I always lose track. And, uh, and we're not going to go forever. So that's good, right? Uh, it's not going to last eternally. Uh, so it arises and ceases. Um, he says it's neither defiled nor pure. Well, there's a lot of things that are defiled and pure. I I had this interesting experience just uh, just before coming here, and I started thinking well, that's kind of weird uh, because I in in the span of a couple of days I made two trips to the top or almost the top, I suppose, of of two big mountains in Europe. Uh, the one I went to before I came here was uh, over, over Salzburg where you can go and see the tea house that Hitler uh, well, I guess he didn't build it but um, it was built for him as some kind of a, a birthday gift if I understand correctly uh, on top of this mountain uh, with a golden elevator that goes up top. It's, quite, it's really interesting if you, if you ever get a chance to go there. It's a very sort of dark period in, in uh, European history, world history. But, um, but it's also quite fascinating to go up on this kind of golden elevator. So I don't think it's made of actual gold, but it's gold-colored. You know, going up to this tea house, which is now a restaurant, um, but used to be the place that Hitler would go for rest and relaxation. You know, and, and, um, and to go from that mountaintop place that was designed as a, as a refuge for arguably the worst person who ever lived... Uh, definitely among the top ten, uh, and and then to you know come up a very similar sort of uh, mountain to to a Zen center that that was that was quite interesting and I thought well people people use mountains for for a lot of different things don't they you know there's a lot of different purposes and we could easily say well um, Hitler's mountaintop refuge uh, is is an example of a sort of defiled use of of a mountaintop. Um, There are all these places underneath. Apparently they bombed, well, the the tea house is mostly intact from from the way it was built, but the the stuff down below, the um, berg, what's it called, berg house or something? There's another area down below that was mostly destroyed uh, during the war and now has a museum on top of it, but you can go underneath, and the only things that, that uh, were preserved of the original structure were all these catacombs they'd built into the mountains uh, to hide in. Uh, and it's quite fascinating that these people who thought they were going to rule the world also thought that they were going to have to hide uh, 100 meters underground uh, to do it because everyone hated them so much. <laughs> you just kind of wonder what goes through people's minds sometimes. But but so that's, that's defiled and, and we would like to think that maybe what we're doing here is a little pure a little bit more pure maybe uh, at least we're trying to do something um, more helpful for the world so, so yes there are things that are defiled and pure and you neither increase nor decrease well things, things always increase and decrease uh, you know the, the price of, of, of petroleum increases all the time um and uh, my income decreases all the time. That's just a joke. I'm sorry. Um, I was just trying to think of something that decreases. But um, but uh, so so you know we can we can find examples of this. So this sounds kind of absurd. So what what sort of view is being being uh, put forward here? Um, it's it's the view of emptiness. So emptiness is this interesting. Idea within, within Buddhism that was largely misunderstood when, when Western people first started studying Buddhism. And I don't think, having lived in Japan for a long time, I don't know if it's any better understood by the average Asian person than it is uh, by us. But uh, I can speak from having actually looked into how it was understood by Western people, because I actually did a little research on this a few years ago, and if you look at some of the earliest writings about Buddhism that exist, uh, the people, the the people who were looking into it, uh, mostly uh, British people who were in India and researching Indian philosophy and, and Chinese philosophy and things, uh, thought, well, this sounds terribly negative, you know. So the so the idea was put forth that Buddhism. Must be this very, very negative uh, philosophy that um, and, and it was kind of a, a mystery as to why there were so many people interested in, in, this, in this terribly negative um, philosophy about emptiness, you know, about nothingness, about the void. Um, but it's really not talking about that. It's not talking about the absence of something. It's saying... That there is a, that there is another way of looking at the world which we usually kind of forget. Um, we, you know, we call this a cup, right? Just to take a really easy example. Uh, it's called a cup in English. It's, it's in Japanese. It's it's called kopu. <laughs> so they 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 have almost the same word. I mean, they must be a native Japanese word. Uh, for this, but these days Japanese people just use the English word cup, uh, but pronounced slightly differently. Um, but we could say it's a cup, but, but on the other hand, we don't know what this is. I mean, we, we have a name for it, but it has a, it has its own kind of reality beyond what we what we call it. You know, we have a name for this this temple and for this mountain and for ourselves, for everything, and we think we understand them. But we don't really. Uh, even even our self is kind of empty, because we we have uh, we have a tendency. Um, if you have a friend um, who you know pretty well, um, you think you know a lot about that person. You know, if it's somebody you've known for a long time, especially, and you create a kind of image in your mind. Of, of your friend, and you call that image uh, John or nina i 'm just thinking of two close friends of mine right now um, and i can and I can think about John or Nina and and get some idea of what they like and what they don 't like. If I want to bring one of them a souvenir from my trip to Europe, I can think about, okay, what would John like and you know he's, he likes jazz and he 's a you know, he's a, he's a musician, so uh, maybe he would like this. And we have that kind of ideas. But we understand, in the case of other people, that those ideas are kind of inadequate. You know, I don't know exactly what John likes. And, um, but we, we also have much the same idea about ourselves, and yet we tend to assume that our ideas about ourselves are correct. But uh, if, if you're like me, uh, if you're at all observant about the world, I think, you'll, you'll notice that you sometimes surprise even yourself. You have a reaction that you didn't expect, for example, to something, to some situation. Or, or you... Sometimes it, it occurs in zazen practice. You know, something comes up in your mind that you don't know what to do with. I think this is something that I have often noticed on retreats, so that's why I'm bringing it up, because maybe it'll be helpful uh, during your your sitting periods, um, that things will occur in my mind that are so different from what the image that I I have of myself that I don't know what to do with them. And there have been times when some of these are quite disturbing uh, because they, they seem um, bad, to put it in Austin Powers quotation marks. So I think the German one is you know, like that. Right? Um, so you'll, you'll start to wonder, I've started to wonder, am I a, a terrible person? Because this this idea just came up in my mind when I got very, very quiet and this idea comes up and I don't like it. Uh, and I and, and I know it's me because I'm not talking to anybody. <laughs> you know, there's nobody out there chatting away with me. Uh, so, so there's only one source this, this idea could have come from. It's me. Uh, what do I do with that? Uh, but I think in in the ultimate sense even ourselves are are kind of empty we don't know what we are we just kind of provisionally outline it in our minds the same way we outline anything else that we encounter we have to have a way of of understanding it and so we we do but we very seldom question that understanding and one of the things that this sutra and and a lot of Buddhist sutras are doing is trying to say, maybe you don't know. Uh, and that can be very uncomfortable. Uh, when you don't know something, it feels dangerous, I think. We, we want to know Uh, who we are, and what we do, and what we like, and what we don't like. We want to know what things are, because that's the way we feel like we can deal with them. Uh, If we don't know, if you don't know the path just before your eyes, how will, no, if you don't know the step just before your, what is that phrase? There's a phrase in the uh, Harmony of Difference and Equality, very famous Buddhist uh, teaching that that says something like if you don't know the path just before you know, if you don't know the way right before your eyes how will you know the path as you walk but we don't often know and we, we like to know, we like to know where we're going, when I came here I had very detailed instructions because I was very concerned that I would get lost uh, coming from Munich to to Felsentor uh, because I'd never been here before, and I didn't know what to expect. I didn't know what anything looked like, so the best I could do was get very detailed instructions about what platform to wait for the train on and, and uh, you know, what train was next, what the number was, and all of that. And I made it. Um, but, uh, but it would have felt very uncomfortable if I, if I didn't know that and if I just tried to do that without knowing it. We don't, we don't like to do that. And and of course that works for things like going from one place to another, going to a place you haven't been before. You can get instructions. You can get Google Maps. You can get uh, the GPS on this thing doesn't uh, work. What do you call Satnav? Is that I guess in most of Europe they call it. But it does. It, it won't work on here unless I pay a lot of money, and I don't want to pay a lot of money. So I can't I can't rely on that. Um, so. Uh, So I'm kind of back to the primitive way. But if we don't have that way, we feel very lost. And I think we make the mistake of wanting that in in an ultimate sense. We want to know kind of exactly where where we are. We're always looking for a, a way to measure or judge it. You know, am I good? Am I bad? Am I doing it right? Am I doing it wrong? Am I making progress or am I not making progress? We go through all these these kind of thoughts uh, when we're doing something. Especially if you're doing something like Zen practice. Uh, One of the hardest parts of this particular style of Zen practice is that it doesn't offer much in terms of ways to measure yourself. If you... um, I don't like to... I don't like to sound like I'm saying bad things about other forms of Zen but I will uh, anyway um, but if you do the uh, my first teacher was he was a student of Cobincino ultimately and studied and taught Soto style Zen but he had also practiced Rinzai style Zen and I remember having discussions with him about that and in Rinzai-style Zen, as probably some of you, maybe all of you know, but I'll just say it anyway, you have, uh, you have the koan system. Um, it's depending on the teacher, some teachers follow it very strictly, and some teachers are very sort of more artistic about it, but the, the, the sort of strict version of it has levels, so that you usually get the koan mu first. You know, uh, does a dog have Buddha nature mu, uh, which means no or nothing. And then you're supposed to solve that one, and then if you solve that one, you get another one. Sometimes it's um, uh, sometimes it's Hakujo's fox, I think. I don't know if that's usually number two, but it's the koan about the, the fox who has 500 lives as a Buddhist monk. I don't know. Maybe I'll talk about that later. But um, And then you move on to that one, and you move on to that one, so you feel like you're having progress. And I remember... Asking Tim about that, and he, he said, this is my first Zen teacher, he said something like, well, yeah, you, you, when you're doing that style of practice, you can have a feeling, this kind of safe feeling like you are progressing, but it's a bit false, ultimately. And I think a good, good teachers within the Rinzai sect also know this and practice with it that way that that your feeling of you've moved from one to the next to the next is actually kind of a, a trick you haven't really moved from anything to anything you're just kind of you're just kind of noticing what's here a little bit more clearly and if you take that and line up your history of life as a series of moments you know a series of usually sort of peak or important moments in your life you can say well this was a little better than that and this is a little better than that but at any given moment you are as enlightened as you are in that moment so so there's no there's no point there's no ultimate point you're you're going for I just I just uh, just recently was answering some of the emails that I get on a regular basis from people who read my books and blogs and things. And somebody was talking about going to some sort of a Buddhist retreat where they kept talking about the the ultimate goal, the ultimate goal. And I always feel like the ultimate goal is a bit a bit of a a trick. You know, there's no there's no ultimate goal. You're just you're just here in the place that you are. And what we're actually trying to do with the practice that we're doing here is to find uh, what that is. But you can never pin it down because it's emptiness. You, know, you can't, you can't uh, say exactly what it is because by the time you've said what it is, it's already changed into something else. So you're constantly kind of flowing through this life looking at it. And that's what we're, we're trying to do in this, in this practice. Um, the, the Heart Sutra goes on. I know I'm deviating all over the place, and I'm sorry this doesn't have a great uh, thematic movement to it, but that's emptiness for you. Um, it says, Therefore, given emptiness... There is no form, no sensation, no perception, no formation, no consciousness. No eyes, no ears, no nose, no tongue, no body, no mind, no sight, no sound, no smell, no taste, no touch, no object of mind, no realm of sight, no realm of, uh, until no realm of mind consciousness. And this is going through uh, first the five skandhas. You know, you probably know this, but in, in Buddhism there's an idea that there isn't a self or a soul that each of us is composed of five skandhas and skandhas is like a heap so it's form feeling perceptions impulses consciousness that's the way I learned it um sometimes they they make it a different way usually form feelings perceptions and consciousness are the same in most translations um here it goes sensation instead of feeling okay fine (laughs) um Formation—that's that's the one that's that's difficult. Form, feeling, perception, impulses. So the version I learned was impulses, and then this one has formation. But it just means uh, action in in a sense. So so what we are is a form, you know, our our physical forms. One way to look at it: um, feelings or sensations that we have, uh, perceptions that we have, um, impulses, which means actions, and the and the impulses or formations that form those actions, and consciousness. Um, And this I find interesting because the usual sort of religious idea of what we are puts consciousness as uh, the, the main thing. And the sort of physicalist, I suppose, or scientific or materialist point of view puts form as the most important thing. And these points of views are always at odds with each other. It always seems to be that it has to be one or the other. It can't be either either we are a consciousness, you know this sort of you know, the religious, Schemes that I'm aware of have this idea that somewhere in ourselves, or somewhere in our bodies, or somewhere, is this is this consciousness that exists apart from the material and animates it. You know, and there's a lot of stuff about this. I I haven't finished this book, and I've had it for a long time. But there's a book um, by this woman named Mary Roach, and it's called Stiff. Uh, And stiff is a kind of slang for a dead person. And it's all about different peoples when, during the 1700s and 1800s when the science was on the rise, there was a lot of interest in trying to scientifically analyze the soul, because science kind of Came to its fruition in countries that were mostly dominated by the Christian worldview. So they had this idea that if there is a soul, we should be able to scientifically uh, discover it. And there were all kinds of uh, all kinds of schemes to try to find where the soul was and what it did and all this stuff. And this book is is an interesting examination of all of that, including a kind of a famous experiment that I'd heard about before. I read the book, in which they were trying to weigh people at the moment of death and see if their weight changed after they died uh, to determine if the soul had weight. Um, And it turns out it's very difficult to do that because the book goes, goes into detail about how they did this because usually people who are in their dying moments don't really want to be on a scale with somebody <laughs> looking at trying to guess their their weight so it was very hard to find people to volunteer and they had to actually find these people who were in kind of semi-vegetative state anyway there was a particular disease they went to a hospital that was specialized in treating a particular disease I've forgotten what it was but it leaves people towards the end with, with very little sort of will to do much of anything and, and so they would take these people who were dying and trying to find the exact moment of death, and you know finding the exact moment of death is very difficult. and getting people to say on the scale and and um, and not mess up the the proceedings is very difficult. so so it turns out there's not much of a way to prove the the weight of the soul. Um, but but see this this is this idea, though, that we are a consciousness that inhabits a body, and that's very uh, that's very prevalent throughout a lot of of religions. Um, Christianity certainly has it and Hinduism certainly has it and and unfortunately in spite of the Buddha's best efforts, Buddhist, certain forms of Buddhism also have it. Um, but uh, that's um, because it because it's inadequate, Buddha rejected that idea so so in the in the idea of the five skanda's consciousness is just one thing among among five and it's not given it's not given the most importance so so our our bodies and our minds are are one thing which which is this kind of nameless emptiness something and that's what this um, this is pointing to and then it goes on and says this stupid stuff about no eyes, no ears, no nose, no tongue, no body, no mind. What does that mean? There's eyes and there's ears and there's tongue. You know, I know that this this exists. Mind, you know, we could we could argue about the nature of mind, but I think we all agree that there's there's something. You know, uh, we don't know exactly what it is, but mind is probably as good a word as any for it, and it, it seems to exist. And yet this this sutra is, is saying it doesn't. Um, oh, that was interesting. Maybe that was a ghost. Um, the, again, it's, it's, it's also emptiness. So eyes, ears, nose, tongue, body, mind, these are also uh, emptiness. These are manifestations of, of emptiness. And we don't know what they are. We have eyes, but they're not really... Eyes. They're just whatever they are, and we call them eyes. Um, and then it goes through the objects of these things. So so no sight, no sound, no smell, no taste, no touch, no object of mind. So that's just the, um, the objects of the, of the senses. Um, and then no realm of sight. So it's denying everything. Um, and what I find particularly interesting about this section... It then goes, well, let's, let's go to the rest of it. Um, there is neither ignorance nor extinction of ignorance, neither old age and death, nor extinction of old age and death. No suffering, no cause, no cessation, no path, no knowledge and no attainment. Uh, this, I, this I like. It took me a while to understand what this sutra is doing. Uh, and it's, it's kind of much more radical than I thought because it's denying basic cornerstones of Buddhist philosophy in something that purports to be Buddhism. So, in a way, it's, it's like if you found a secret passage in the Bible that said no crucifixion, no resurrection, no savior, you know, it, it, you wouldn't find that in the Bible because the whole thing is based on being crucifixion, resurrection, and salvation, right? Um, and so, so what this is doing is it's saying this is the ignorance and extinction of ignorance is um, actually more pointedly, suffering, cause, cessation, and path, those are the four noble truths. Those are the first thing that, things that Buddha said, historical Buddha, when he became you know, enlightened, uh, as people like to call it, uh, is supposed to have given this speech Called, uh, usually called the first turning of the Dharma wheel, and he gave it to these five guys who were hanging around with him when he was a, a wandering monk. Do you know the story? I mean, the story briefly is that he was hanging around with these five guys um, who, were, who were all wandering monks, and then he, he left them because, uh, because he thought they were being too severe with themselves, um, particularly they weren't eating at all. Uh, and, uh, and he accepted some food from, from some, some uh, girl who was taking it to offer to one of the gods, and she said, you look like you're starving. Maybe you can use this more than the, than the statue. And, and he said, yeah, I sure can, and ate it. Um, and that made a break with these monks because they thought, well, this guy's a big phony. You know, We don't want to hang around with this guy anymore. He, he's, he's rejected the whole thing we're working on. So, so he went off and meditated by himself, and he thought he, he felt like he had a, a profound experience. So he thought, who's going to understand this experience? And um, thought, well, maybe those five guys I was hanging around with might understand this. And so he gives a speech to them, and the first thing he talks about is, is the Four Noble Truths there's suffering, origination of suffering. A, a, how does it, no, no cause, no cessation, uh, no suffering, no cause. So there's a suffering. There's a cause of suffering. Uh, there's a way to cease suffering, and there's a path to the to cease the ceasing of suffering. Um, yet, yet here we are in the Heart Sutra, written probably around two to five hundred years after Buddha had died, uh, which says uh, no. No cause, no, no suffering, no cause, no cessation, no path. Again, emptiness. You, can, you have a, a, an experience which you call suffering, but uh, you can also call that experience something else. You know, every... I came across this interesting phrase, and I forget where it was. It was some Western philosopher who said something about every good is some kind of evil. Um, and, uh, and this really... I only came across this recently, and it, it, it struck me because I thought, well, yeah, that's that's true. You know, we do those meal verses every day when we do retreats. And one of the reasons we do them is to remind ourselves that eating is actually, a, we're kind of doing violence to the world. I mean, we're eating vegetarian up here, vegan, I guess. I, I haven't seen anything, I haven't seen any eggs or cheese in anything yet. Um... And, and that's a way of reducing uh, the violence that we commit in, in getting things for us to eat. But it doesn't eliminate it. Um, because the plants are suffering, and, and in order to grow plants, you have to do kind of violence to the earth and, and the creatures who are already living there when you decide to plow it up and, and plant something. Uh, there's insecticides. I remember... Um, uh, Green Gulch Farm, which is run by the San Francisco Zen Center, apparently they had a huge debate, and maybe, I know some of the, uh, there's gardens here, so maybe this has come up at Felsentor as well, uh, that um, whether she's blood-based fertilizer. Apparently, the, I didn't know this, but apparently the best kind of fertilizer uh, is... is uh, obtained largely from slaughterhouses and is, and is the, the blood and other bits of, uh, of animal slaughtered animals. Uh, and they had a big debate over whether they should use this, and they finally decided to use it. <laughs> they decided that, um, that uh, it was the best thing to use. But um, it, it just kind of goes to show that there's no way to escape this. So we say this, we do this... Uh, we do this recitation every time we eat to remind ourselves that that every that's what what's good for us in terms of of eating some nice food. And I've enjoyed what what we've had so far. Um, is is also uh, causing some some death and destruction. So so um, no matter what it is, it has an opposite realm. And so even even the four noble truths, they aren't. The Four Noble Truths. The suffering may not be suffering. The the cause may not be the cause. The cessation might not cease anything, and the path might be totally bullshit, you know, for all we know. Um, we just we just follow it. Um, but to me the, the thing about things like the the Heart Sutra and that is I don't I don't like philosophy when it's just when it's just thinking about things, um, it has to have some kind of practical application. And the practical application of this is when you start to understand that you don't know and when you can become comfortable with not knowing, uh, this, this very unique way of living becomes available. I think That you, you realize you don't have to know And you don't have to. um, You can kind of rest in a in a place of of unknowing. The uh, the early Christian philosophers. um, There's a pseudo Dionysus Dionysus. I I I I I mentioned. Pseudo Dionysus in a talk in Munich, and I found out that in German it's pronounced differently, and I was confusing everybody. But I've forgotten how it's pronounced. But um, uh, there was a philosopher, a Christian philosopher, who wrote under the name Dionysus, but he was not Dionysus, so historians call him Pseudo Dionysus. But he he wrote a book called uh, The Cloud of Unknowing. Uh, and Saint John of the Cross also wrote some things very similar about rising up through unknowing to, well, to Christ in, in their way of writing it. But when you read some of this early Christian, mystical Christian philosophy, you realize that Christ isn't exactly what, what they mean when they say Christ, isn't quite what they mean when, you know, the guys on television talk about uh, Christ. It's something much more mystical than that. It's something much bigger than that. Um, but the idea was there before Western people even had any contact at all with Buddhism. In fact, some of this even predates uh, certain forms of Buddhism, specifically Zen. It sounds A lot of this early Christian stuff sounds like Zen Buddhism, but it's, it predates Zen. But it has the same idea that you give up knowing. And in giving up knowing, uh, you you actually experience something much much greater than that. I'm trying to decide how. Seventeen thirty. What? No. Lecture's supposed to go till five. <laughs> I always have trouble with um, the time when it's in, when it's expressed. This one. Okay. Um. Good. and the ending of the heart sutra is of course weird uh, because you've gotten through all this philosophical stuff and then the last third of it or so starts talking about this mantra Uh, therefore know that Prajnaparamita is the great miraculous mantra, the great bright mantra, the supreme mantra, the incomprehensible the incomparable mantra which removes all suffering and we proclaim the Mantra that says, Gate, Gate, Paragate, Parasam, Gate, Bodhisvaha, which basically means gone, gone, gone all the way to the other shore, hooray. Um, that Svaha is something nobody's ever adequately translated, but it seems to be a kind of an expression of like, yay! yay. Um, and uh, I remember Tim telling me a story that somebody asked Coben, what's, what? What is this? stuff at the end about the mantra, and he said, oh, that's just Indian, that's just Indian stuff, um, because in in the the sort of established scheme of how to write a sutra, every sutra had to end with a mantra, and so this one has to end with a mantra, and before you give the mantra, you have to say how great it is, so this says how great the mantra is, and then gives the mantra at the end, but... Um, it doesn't really—it doesn't really add anything philosophical to, to the piece. Does anyone have any questions? Because I don't know. Sometimes when I'm talking, and we have such a small group that we can actually have a conversation here. Um, sometimes I don't know if I've picked a topic that's interesting or picked a topic that's just boring, and nobody wants to hear about it. Um. Have you looked into the connection, the possible connection with quantum physics, with this? And form i've like looked at it, it is with the distance between tiny particles sure yeah. yeah it's 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 really interesting and then there's a there's a uh, a book that came out recently are you cold too i was going to start yeah. closing the doors myself um, I, was, I was hoping I wasn't the only Um, yeah thank you for giving us all permission to yeah. declare how cool yeah I've looked into it and it, there's a there's a book that came out which I haven't looked at but it's called a universe from nothing I don't know if there's a I actually I actually saw it came out last year and I was traveling around and I like to go to bookstores and I saw some foreign translations I don't remember if, it, if I saw a German one or not but uh, but it's a book in in which uh, somebody tries to grapple with this idea that's becoming quite popular with um, people working in that field these days. That maybe the universe actually arose out of nothing. You know, uh, which is which is a mind-blowing idea because we we have the we've gotten as far as coming up with this idea of the Big Bang which, which says that all the matter and space in the universe was compressed into a tiny piece, you know, a tiny atom-sized or maybe smaller than an atom piece and then burst out uh, for reasons we have no idea and no adequate explanation for and it became the universe. Uh, but now the idea is starting to come up that maybe it wasn't even like that. Maybe just uh, the fact of there being nothing gives rise to to things existing it's all very weird you know um, but I find that stuff really fascinating and now that I have a Netflix account, I, I often go and watch the the latest, Science documentaries and they're all kind of very dumbed down versions of the of these scientific things. But I'll but I'll watch you know I'll watch three of them in a row sometimes just to oh wow that's really incredible. And some of the some of the theories that are being brought out are are really amazing. And and I think <coughs> what's amazing to me about them because I, having the, the background of studying Zen is. If you're, if you're sort of a scientist, you're looking at this in terms of something that happened a long time ago, right? So you say, well, a long time ago there was nothing, and then there was the universe. But I think it's actually even weirder than that. I think it's now there's nothing, <laughs> and there's a universe. Uh, because that would be kind of the, the my take on the Buddhist philosophical way of, of looking at things. That if you're going to say everything arose from nothing then you might as well say everything arose now out of nothing, as to say it arose out of nothing four and a half billion years ago. Because, because time, in the Buddhist sense, and, and often uh, the way physicists talk about it these days, is sort of a, a, a dimension of things, but it's, it's just one way of looking at it. Um, and another way of looking at it says there is no time and everything happens simultaneously. You know? So it's... Um, Quite intriguing, yeah, but you could you know you could kind of go on and on, you could kind of spin this out <coughs> forever uh, and and i'm perfectly happy to do that <laughs> because but but I realize ultimately there isn't an answer i mean there there may be i think science is is interesting because it, it's it's getting we're getting closer and closer to explaining reality and the first few breakthroughs that science made must have been, to the people at the time, just, just we take them for granted, but they must have been just incredibly weird. You know, you, we know people were burned at the stake and things like that, or, or, or killed or banished for, for saying the Earth uh, orbits the sun. You know, now we just take it for granted that the Earth orbits the sun. But there was a time when that was not known, and that you could manipulate the forces of electricity uh, to such a degree that you could just flip a switch and have lights. you know we, we do that so routinely now that we don't we, we forget how amazing that is you know it's really incredible um, that, that you can do these, these things we do and the things that, that cell phones and laptop computers and, and things like that do are just really amazing because, because people have worked on the problem of what is this reality we're living in and, and have come up with adequate theories that work you know and, and, and a lot of these scientific theories are undeniable because they work, because we have, have a thing like this um, and uh, he said picking up his cell phone or whatever, um it 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 works, and it is um, it's proof that that the scientific worldview is at least as far as as a certain degree it's it's accurate, um, but it doesn't explain everything. There's there's certain areas where we can't reach, and there's there's a feeling that maybe science will one day come up with an explanation for it. And I think maybe that's true. I think maybe science will someday come up with an explanation of consciousness, for example. But that won't make it, that won't be the same as the experience of consciousness, ever. You know, the experience of being alive is something uh, which, even if you explain it, well, good, you've explained it, but that doesn't really, uh, that doesn't really, that's not it. That's not the same thing. As, as what it is. I mean, even the, even the... I was actually looking into this for a piece of writing I had been working on. Um, life and death. Uh, or not, not even death. Life and non-life. There's there a kind of a, a... common understanding that there are certain things that are alive and certain things that are not alive, right? And we kind of know this. You know, there's rocks out there, and we don't think the rocks are alive. But there's trees out there, too, and we think the trees are alive, and we are alive. Uh, But it turns out that people who have spent time trying to make a definition where you can say, if it meets these criteria, it's alive, and if it doesn't, it's not, nobody's ever come up with an adequate set of criteria. That are, that are absolute, where you can say, if it meets these criteria, it's alive, but if it doesn't, it's not alive. There's always some sort of exception, and there's always some sort of a gray area. Um, which is interesting from the point of view of, of the, the philosophy of, of Buddhism, which says, uh, essentially, that everything is alive. Uh, Dogen says this a lot. He this one piece I was working on goes into the idea of, of mountains walking um, and the idea that the earth is, is alive, in, in a sense. And, and he doesn't really mean it metaphorically. He's saying that, that, that even these things which we think of as being non-sentient matter are actually living things. So yeah, that, there's a whole area that's quite fascinating. But ultimately, in the end, it's sort of emptiness too, because any explanation you can have, no matter how fascinating or useful, is also not the thing. So we're kind of we're kind of still in emptiness. Thank you. Had a hand. Mine goes in a slightly different direction. Okay. You've shown us a pretty complex text and tried to explain it. Mm -hmm. To a certain extent, maybe you've explained something, but a lot of your explanation was, we don't know. The text itself doesn't allow a full explanation. So it's already confusing and puzzling and so on. My question is, why do we have to recite it? And particularly, why do we have to recite it in Japanese? And particularly in Japanese, that nobody speaks. What's the logic Uh, of all this? How does this contribute to our practice? That's an interesting question, because it's a question I've, thought a lot about and I can give you my answer and whether it's an adequate answer or not I don't know in fact I don't know if it's an adequate answer for myself um, as I mentioned during the first talk I gave here I think uh, I had teachers who didn't do those ceremonial chants and things My n- neither Tim McCarthy nor Nishijima Roshi really did those uh, I remember Nishijima would occasionally chant the Heart Sutra um, for special occasions, um, but um, and when and he did like the robe verse that, that verse that we do the Daisai Geifu Kumuso Fukudenai, which is great robe of liberation, filled beyond form and emptiness, wearing the Tathagata's teaching, saving all beings. I, I think the German version that we recited in the morning is, uh, well, that not me recited in the morning was quite similar. So he would do those two, but he didn't do the rest because he thought they were unnecessary. Um, historically speaking, <clears throat> uh, there's this guy named Charlie Picorni who I've never actually met, but he's a San Francisco Zen Center guy, and he does a lot of research. Which, which, as far as I know, he hardly ever publishes any of it. But it's really good stuff, and I, and a lot of it's available only at the Tassajara's library. You know, there's they're printed on. Xerox paper, and they're in the library, these these articles that he's written, and some of them are great. And one of them that I found, he researched, uh, just historically speaking, why we do those chants. And historically speaking, it's because uh, the original, the earliest Buddhists believed in the oral tradition more than the written tradition, even though there was a written language at the time. But They were distrustful of it. I I kind of get the impression they were distrustful of it the way people today might be distrustful of computers. You know, they they thought it was an inadequate way to learn and that the older way of memorizing things was somehow better. Um, So the way they would memorize the Buddhist teachings was uh, those who had heard him speaking would get together and compare their memories and compare come up with a version of what they'd heard, that they could agree on, and then chant that. So they would regularly get together and, and in groups uh, chant the, uh, the words that they heard from the Buddha. And so what we do in the morning as a recitation is kind of in memory or in commemoration, as far as the history goes, of that. You know of that of that practice that they used to do that nobody does anymore, uh, not at least not for that purpose. Um, if you're if you're doing it in a language you understand, it's easier to explain the benefits of it because there's a book which another one of these books that I've bought and haven't read, but I've read pieces of, and it's Alan de Bautain, or de Botan. I'm not sure how to pronounce it. But it's a French guy. I don't know if he wrote it in English but if, or or if it's or if the version I have is just translated from French but the the book is called something like religion for atheists something like that and he talks about how religions do a lot of things right that that atheists who he considers himself to be one of could learn from. And one of the things he particularly singles out is this idea of recitation. Because it's one thing to just read the Heart Sutra. I think most, mostly the way you would deal with something like the Heart Sutra, if you were just dealing with it on a philosophical basis, is you would read it, you know, quietly to yourself. Maybe only once, maybe a few times. But um, you would just kind of do that... And it turns out you, that, that people who recite things will will remember them better and learn better from them. Um, and if you're reciting it in a language that you're familiar with, this happens. But what happens, as you said, when you recite it in a foreign language? Well, one of the reasons I decided to, to do it in the Sino-Sanscript here is because I wasn't really sure who was going to come to this, and, uh, and I had to make a decision which... Chant sheets to put out. Uh, so I decided, well, we'll just do the, the Sino Sanskrit because nobody will understand it rather than half the room understanding it and half the room not understanding it. You know, if we'd done it in English or if we'd done it in German, almost everybody understanding it except for me. Um, and we have one other person, yeah, who's not that good in German. Uh, so, you know, that I, I just thought we'll just level the field and nobody will understand it. Um, and that's, that's, uh, that's, a, that's a more difficult thing because that takes it into another area. I've actually studied the Sino-Sanskrit and I while I can't say that chanting the Heart Sutra in that language I know exactly what it says as if it was spoken in for example standard Japanese which I could probably follow along pretty easily at this point. Um, but I know in the, I know where we are in the chant, you know so I feel like I have a little bit of this advantage that that a lot of other people don't. so at least I know that this part is saying um, like Musho Toko is um, that's actually the cue where you stand up and go do the in, incense offering, and it's um, how do we translate here Musho um, toko"? ah the mind is without hindrance and thus the mind is without hindrance is musho tokko in Sino-Sanskrit and that's when if you stand up at that point you will will be able to do the bow when the word prajnaparamita comes up Um, (coughs) anyway uh, sorry for that digression Um, I feel that part of Part of what we're doing when we, when I went to Tasahara for the first time and had to participate in the group chanting, because I'd signed up for it as a student, and one of the things you actually sign a paper saying that you will participate in the group chanting. Um, I mean, that's not all it says, but it says all these things you agree to, and one of them is participating in the group chanting, which I found interesting. Um, so, so I'd agreed to do this and so I was going to do it um, and they do it sometimes in the, in the Sino-Sanskrit they, do it, they, they alternate days they do it in English one day and Sino-Sanskrit the next day and that's how they, <coughs> they handle that problem so I remember during one of the days when it was doing in, in Sino-Sanskrit in the so-called Japanese version uh, I thought, oh, it's, I see, it's like community building. It's like, the, the image that came up for me was, it's like everybody going out together to get ice cream. I don't know why I thought of it that way, but, you know, just like something that you do together to feel like you're more of a community. You know, you you go out and, and get ice cream together Was the image I came up with. So it, it's, a, it's a way to kind of feel... The, the community interacting um, by by all doing this this thing together um, and I and I think there's a value to that my actually I'm going to see if we can have the English ones printed up uh, for maybe tomorrow or maybe it'll take longer than that and we'll have to do it for another day but and so that we can try that we can chant it in English. And then we'll know what we're saying. We'll all know what we're saying. (coughs) Um, I feel that that is important, though, too, because we are what we are doing isn't just an individual practice. We are. It's kind of like what I said at the first, my first introductory talk, is that what we're doing is we're kind of working on ourselves. You know, we are we are sitting here. And we're kind of, in a way, locked into our own space when we're, when we're sitting. We're not really interacting with anybody um, in, in, except in terms of the bell rings and we all get up together and we, we all agree to sit together and sit still together and not bother each other because we've, we've all decided we want to do this, I hope. And, um, and there's a kind of strength uh, I was telling somebody in Dokusan uh, this morning or this afternoon. I don't remember which Dokusan I talk, mentioned this in, but um, I I know this guy, this Finnish guy who actually did a retreat by himself. I don't I, I don't remember. If, I think it was twenty days, but I don't remember if that if that's right. But he set himself up a schedule and he stuck to it. Um, and it's, I've never heard of anybody doing that. I've never tried doing that myself. It sounds crazy to me, <laughs> you know. Uh, it, it seems like you need a group in order to do this sort of uh, this sort of a practice where you're going to go for several days and just dedicate yourself to it. It's really hard to do that on your own. So you, you get together with a bunch of people and we all do it together and it's easier. We're supporting each other. Um although we aren't really talking to each other, we're, we're supporting each other in this, in this crazy thing we've all decided to do. So, so coming together and chanting, I, I feel like it helps, uh, it, it, to me it sort of helps overcome some of the fact that we're not talking. So we do, we do allow a certain amount of, of, we do dokusan and that's talking, and we, and we have this, this moment when we come together and we chant something together and it's not quite as intimate as having a conversation and getting to know each other, but it is a way of kind of making everybody feel like they're they're doing something together, you know. And I know a lot of people will also kind of add this more mystical element to it, where they say, "Well, you you, you gain merit somehow, or you you increase some sort of." Ethereal feeling of oneness throughout the world by chanting. I, I don't know, you know. I don't. There was a time in my life when I would have said absolutely not. There's no way you, I chant something here and it helps people in Lucerne feel better. Um, I, I would have said that's stupid. That's a dumb idea. Um, but I've, I've kind of working with this now. I'm, I'm a bit more skeptical of my skepticism. I'm starting to go, well, maybe, maybe there's some... But if, if it helps, it helps in a very small way, if it does something at all, um, by um, by making us all... You know, I know I, I said this in one of the dokusans. Um, so I don't remember if I said it to you or who I said it to. Well, I mean, it doesn't matter. Um, uh, there's this guy who comes to. So at least one of you have heard, has heard this story before. There's a guy who comes regularly to my retreats and things in Los Angeles, and his, his name is Rob Robbins, and he was struggling with this idea, of the Bodhisattva vow, which says the first one, it says, "I, I vow to save all beings," uh, and. Rob was having trouble with this and I was having... I've always had trouble with it because I always sort of imagined it like Superman. You know, Superman goes and he hears somebody crying over there and he's got to go run and fly and help that person and then help the next one. Uh, I saw this one sort of... I, I remember seeing as a kid this um, story, the Superman story, which was sort of presented as a, sort of a funny Superman story and it was like a day in the life of Superman. And he's he's on the phone as mild-mannered reporter for the Daily Planet, and suddenly somebody in China is having a problem. So he has to go, "Uh, excuse me, um, I'll call you back, hangs up the phone and drills a hole all the way through planet Earth to get to China and help this person, then comes back, you know, and uh, and then two minutes later somebody else is having a problem over in, you know, Amsterdam, and he's got to go over there and... And he's just exhausted because he's helping. and I, And I thought the Bodhisattva vow was asking us to be like that. But what Rob said, I thought was brilliant. He said, "I vow to save all beings from myself, uh, which I thought was a really, really good way to look at it, because we do this practice for ourselves, to work on ourselves and to make to make it so that we ourselves are now are not contributing or are contributing less to the misery of the world, you know? And that helps. Uh, it, really, it really has an effect, and we don't, you don't really know how far-reaching that effect is because you find that maybe you practice a little bit, and maybe you're nicer to somebody who's having a really bad day, and maybe that person remembers it and does something good, and you just don't know what the effect could be. You know, it could be amazing. And, and the more people who do that, the better. So, so we do this kind of selfish practice, but it's not entirely selfish. It's for the world. You know, we're trying to do something good for the world by working on ourselves. So, so, and working in a community to do that is, is hard. Um, <laughs> another story I'll tell you is um, there used to be a bookstore in Los Angeles called the Bodhi Tree Bookstore and it was supposedly a Buddhist bookstore but they sold a lot of things like The Secret and other stuff. Um, They went out of business I think because they just they were selling The Secret and Healing Crystals and stuff but they had this huge stock of Buddhist books. It was a big, big store. Like a, a, you know as a bookstore even as just an ordinary bookstore it was a big bookstore and it really specialized in Buddhist books. Um and I was in there one time and there was another customer, two other customers, I mean, there were several customers, but two who, who were talking loudly and I could hear them. And one, because I could hear their conversation, one was the person who translated for uh, Joshu Sasaki Roshi. Who Joshu Sasaki, uh, some of you might know, there's been a bunch of scandals about how he was grabbing women during the dokusan but he was also arguably... Uh, a really uh, good Zen teacher when he wasn't <laughs> grabbing people, and uh, but I don't want to get into that. Maybe tomorrow we can get into that. Um, but uh, he was—he was—he's most famous for being Leonard Cohen's Zen teacher. You know, the singer Leonard Cohen uh, who studied with Joshu Sasaki, and so this guy was asking the translator of Joshu Sasaki. He was trying to get. She actually was a woman. Was trying to get stories about Leonard Cohen from him, from this translator for Joshu Sasaki, um, because obviously he would have known Leonard Cohen and he said she said, she said, I read this book by of poems by Leonard Cohen and it said it said something about I was in a I'm in a being in a Buddhist retreat, seething, like feeling this intense anger for the person sitting next to me. And, and she said, this can't be true, right? He must be just talking, you know, metaphorically or making a joke or something. You know, they can't really be doing that. And he said to her, you've never been on a Zen retreat before. <laughs> because that happens, you know, you can feel. It's a weird situation we have. We have a small group, so it's probably, it's not really likely it's going to become any sort of a problem here. But I've seen it become a problem in bigger groups. You know, I was with a, I was at a, I was on a retreat once. It was a silent retreat, mostly silent retreat, um, in Minnesota, in the U.S. And this, um, all of a sudden, I, I was in some other part of the, the monastic grounds when this happened. But I could hear it. I was quite, a, quite a distance away. These people just started arguing, it was two women, they're just yelling and screaming at each other, you know. Nobody has said anything for like 3 days so far, and all of a sudden these two people are going, "Ah are you," you know, and I couldn't tell what they were saying, but they were just furious. And it was the kind of thing that, that you get this kind of tension going when there's a lot of people together and nobody's allowed to talk. So you you're kind of in often, not everybody does this, but you're often inventing little things in your mind like, "Yeah, that guy didn't didn't bow to me, He must be an asshole. Yeah, you know, you can get this kind of thing going. Maybe it doesn't become quite that defined, but you can get these kind of weird feelings. And I, I think the, the group chanting, I hope, is a way to kind of help with that a little bit. And, and as I said, I did a lot of retreats where there was no chanting at all, or, or just the meal verses, um, meal verses and the verses before and after a lecture which we're not doing here but um, but no group chanting and they were okay nobody yelled at anybody in those retreats but I think we would have benefited a little bit so the benefits are small and the, and and you can mm-hmm. do an adequate Buddhist retreat or meditation retreat without it but I the other thing is I kind of like it <laughs> you know that's That's the other reason I'm doing it. I sort of enjoy it. Um, It sort of gives me this kind of neat feeling. I I, I kind of, as you'll notice, I don't, my policy on retreats is usually I wear the Buddhist robes for the first and last zazen of the day. And then in the middle of the day, I don't wear them because I find them really uncomfortable. You know, it's just my, my personal feeling about them. And then I also, then every time I do that, I always feel like, eh, maybe I'm not putting on the right image, you know, just in this T-shirt and stuff, but um, so be it. Um, but I kind of like it. I put on the robes, and I do this thing, and it's all very, you know, formal, and I get to go up there and put the incense in and do the bows, and it's nice. Um, and it's just this kind of nice feeling that that's created. I, I look at it, I, I'm a... Sort of a musician, if you can call it playing bass in a punk rock band being a musician, um, and I look at it like like a, a little bit like a musical or theatrical performance. We all kind of get together and we do this thing, and, and you know everybody participates. So there's no actual audience. You know, we all we're all doing it, um, and that's and that I I just like the aspect of, of that. So I don't know if that's an adequate answer, but it's a long one. <laughs> so, at least I can say that. Um, anything? I don't mind if we go past five o'clock, uh, if we still have more questions. Um, it's um, ten till five now. Um, yeah. I feel like the whole sutra is. is um, it starts with this this phrase um, form is emptiness and emptiness is form. Yeah. But the whole sutra talks only about the first phrase form is emptiness. Oh, and it doesn't talk about em- emptiness is, saying, is form. Uh, you also mainly about first. Right. Yeah, I think that's. I think. I think that's true. And Dogen has a chapter of Shobogenzo where he uh, he writes about the Heart Sutra, and he says form is emptiness, emptiness is form, mm-hmm. and then he also says form is form and emptiness is emptiness. So there's there's even two other aspects mm-hmm. of it that are not <clears throat> talked about. But yeah, it's. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I think, I think the, the probably the writer thought that by probably wanted, wanting to keep it short, uh, thought that by, i just thinking as a writer now, that by saying form is emptiness, uh, you're also addressing emptiness as form. But there is an, another way of, of looking at it. So emptiness as form would be that here we are, forms, you know, we think we have a form and we think we are... Um, people but we are actually manifestations of emptiness. you know um, this is emptiness, <laughs> you know me, you, everybody. Uh, so we are we are also um, emptiness, walking and talking emptiness. Uh, and, and and it's another it's another way of, of looking at it. So um, if emptiness is form, it means that everything we see as form, well, is emptiness. So you, you just keep reversing back on itself. So, uh, what is emptiness? I mean, it's, it's that, sometimes you get a sense of it. Later on, if I, if I get, uh, supposedly Thursday, uh, um, a friend of mine is coming uh, with, some of my books and I have this quote which I can never remember it's from Coben Chino so it would be good to to give it here but it's another case if I put it in the book so that I could find it easily in which he talks about you can um, let me see if I can remember it a little bit he's saying when you when you go to the source of something it's never it's never the same. And he gives the example of a, a spring. So this is like a, a big river, like that river up there, um, is, is originally starts at a very tiny point somewhere. We don't know where, but we could trace it back. And if you actually go to that spot, you can see where it. you know, there's, there's this sort of gray area where it's not quite, it's just a damp spot on the ground in one point, and then eventually it's a, something as giant as a river. And that as a, as a kind of way of understanding emptiness becoming form. It, it, it starts off... And saying it starts off is kind of wrong as well, because it doesn't really start off at a point in time. It is both emptiness and form at the same time. So we, we think of ourselves in a certain way and we have ways of measuring that that are adequate enough. And we we imagine that's real. But maybe reality is a little different from how we imagine it, or maybe it's completely different. So we don't know exactly what we are. And I have this feeling, if I can get a little strange with everybody, I don't know how strange this is, but sometimes I feel strange if I talk like this. I have a feeling that humanity is moving towards a time. I think there'll be a lot of trouble before we get there. But I think we'll get there eventually where we'll, we'll have an adequate understanding of ourselves. And it might not be quite something we can put into words or a formula. And I think once we get there, we'll, we'll look at ourselves very differently and that people, once that's happened, will look back on us and go, why did they think they were like that, you know. We'll seem, we will seem very strange, um, but we are, we're, we're kind of walking through this, this time that we're in, and trying to understand what emptiness is and what form is, and we have our dharma ancestors who left us words to try to explain it, but we don't, you know. We're we're still kind of at the point where all we can say is we don't know, so so form is emptiness and emptiness is form is kind of, um, given the current language and understanding, there's not much more you can say than that. It's sort of like um, that's that's where it all sort of rests. It's 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 neither it's not form it's not emptiness it's something which. If we look at it one way, we call it form. If we look at it another way, we call it emptiness. But it's not two different things. Uh, it's just one thing. Or something like that. <laughs> I'm talking too much. I'm going to get my give myself a cough. I, I just, just had a thought. Uh, if we look on mind as emptiness and body as form... Yeah, that's one way to do Buddhist it. And the Buddhist teaching says that is just one. It's an illusion to think it was... Good both being separate things, or separate, whatever, Mm -hmm. Uh, that's what it takes us towards it, doesn't it? And then there's a second thought. If you you take an electron electron microscope and you look at what we think is solid matter, it breaks down down into 98% space and tiny little particles in between, but if you go far enough away, to our eyes these sensors are picking up electromagnetic pulses something apparently solid, but it's not solid at all. It's ninety-eight percent space by like the universe. Yeah, yeah, and and but I mean of course there is a way there is a way to say it's solid. You know, there's a there's always the Buddhist teachings where somebody kind of goes, Oh it's not solid, it's just emptiness and then his teacher smacks him in the face, you know, and goes, Okay, there's you know, that's, there's that story where he twist the guy's nose and says, There's your emptiness, you know, and um and so it's saying that that these two aspects are, are both real so yeah there's there's a there's a there's a spot where you could say i mean there's me and there's the cushion but if you did the electron microscope test it would be very hard to detect where i stop and the cushion begins you know it it may be uh, it, it would look like a continuing a continuous flow of energy and and, uh, and forces so yeah, we we we're in this, we're living in this you know, it it's it's interesting to me because as a kid I was sort of this kind of angry, bored young person. You know, that was my young person persona. And I and I um I thought I wanna get out to where it's really happening, you know, and everything sort of was was like was 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 geared towards that, that that there was this boring world that I really didn't want to have anything to do with but there must be something better but, but what changed that is, is getting into Zen philosophy and going well wait a minute everything is incredible this fly right here you know everything is amazing if you, if you take the time to actually look at it and I really think that this has very practical real-world applications in that if, if we start looking at how amazing the world really is that we're living in, a lot of the things that we concern ourselves with start to seem really trivial. You know, you don't really want to start a war or, or things like that when you're just amazed by the fact that you're living at all. You know, these, these causes that people fight and die for and, 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 and create so much misery around just just um, just melt away, you know and 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 you go, Wow, it's just amazing that I'm living at all, you know, we still have problems with each other, and we still have difficulties dealing with each other, and we still have to figure out how to compromise and you know this sort of thing that all is real, but um but once we understand that we're all kind of the same that we just you know none of us really knows the. The answer, and and uh, none of our religions are really right, and none of our governments are are perfect, and we're just we're just kind of plugging along. And, and once we get to that point, I think we'll we'll be able to build a, a society that's, that's beyond anything we can we can even imagine. You know, I'm one of these geeks who likes going on YouTube and and finding uh, weirdos talking about aliens. It's just, it's something that I stumbled upon uh, within the the last year or two. I started, you know, accidentally looking at these things and these crazy people talking about aliens. Um, And and a lot of their ideas have to do with with positing the idea that there are super races out there in space that are... um, that are a million years beyond us in terms of technology and and whatever, and there's no way to say that's wrong. You know, it's perfectly plausible that 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 those kind of civilizations exist. You know, in some on some other planet. There's, you know, I can't deny it. I I kind of almost everybody who talks about that sort of thing also turns out to be a complete nutcase. <laughs> um, <laughs> when you examine them a little bit further and that's always disappointing but but I'd like to think that okay well maybe they exist I don't know but it's entirely possible that if we if we can hold it together if we can keep our shit together and not kill each other or destroy the world we live in we could be those you know those people there's that's real you know that's undeniably real I think that, that we if we can if we can manage to hold it together and and keep going in a good course we could actually create a civilization that's that's beyond you know what we can imagine we could do amazing things we could preserve you know everything we could have this um, this fully balanced light and I, I want that to happen um, and I think uh, I think this is this is me getting a little weird again Um I think you know, there's only nine of us, right, in this room. No, wait a minute. Ten of us in this room, right? Uh, and it seems like nothing, you know. There's, there's so few people. You know, and there's, there's other people working on the same problem in, in different ways. And it doesn't have to be within Zen Buddhism. That's just one way of doing it. There's, there's a handful of people in this world who, who are really doing it. And, and I know it sounds like a wacky New Age Stuff and I hate those people too, um, who who kind of get into that um, stuff. I think it just lit up. Anyway, um, but there is there is a there is a sense that we could we could really get there, and I'd like us to get there. And so, um, I feel like if we if we keep working in these small groups, that's how it always starts. You know, there's a few people, there's a hand, there were a handful of people in the Middle Ages, who said, you know, maybe it's true that Earth does orbit the sun. You know, and they were the tiny minority, and everybody's going, you are stupid, and, you know, and killing them, and banishing them, and, and just ignoring them, or whatever. But eventually it starts to grow, and then you get, you know, everybody kind of accepts it. So maybe, I'd like to think that, that eventually this kind of worldview that we can actually work together will will become accepted by more more than just 10 people in a room in Switzerland and you know, maybe we can have Alright, there you go. That's what I said to the people in Switzerland in 2015 I hope you enjoyed it. If you want to support this podcast, go to hardcorezen.info slash donate. That is hardcorezen.info slash donate. There you will find links to my PayPal and Patreon accounts. Those are my main and usually only ways of getting money. And I really appreciate your support. But as always, this podcast is offered for free. So you don't got to pay if you don't want to pay. We will see you next time. Have a good time all the time. Bye.